ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Own Bitcoin but also want income? There is a way to generate monthly income while you hold. Visit Simplify.us for information on the Simplify Bitcoin Income Strategy. Simplify Asset Management, Inc. is a registered investment advisor. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor. This information is not intended to provide investment advice. Now it's time for ETF Prime where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. Last week published what I thought was a very thought-provoking piece on shareholder voting. And I'm going to ask that you stay with me for a moment on this because I realize this may not sound like the most exciting topic in the world. But I'm going to tell you, as you start digging a little deeper, this becomes way more interesting. So the piece he wrote is titled, ESG Died in 2022. And obviously, (laughs) you know I love that title, but in all actuality, Jan's piece really isn't so much about that as it is about the growth of passive investing and how the rise of passive has helped consolidate corporate voting power in the hands of just a few large asset managers. So Jan is concerned that fund companies like BlackRock and Vanguard simply carry too big of a stick now. And in typical Jan fashion, uh, he's not out here just complaining. He's proposing some potential solutions as well. So this week, we're going to have a bit of a roundtable discussion because also joining me to discuss this will be Dave Nodig, financial futurist at Vetify. And it's funny. So I mentioned this piece to Dave at uh, Exchange last week. And right away, I saw a, a glimmer in his eyes. It was clear as day. He liked this topic, and so I thought it'd be good to bring him into the conversation as well. And so what we'll do is uh, Dave and I will chat uh, for a few minutes to set the table, and then Jan will join us for a much more in-depth conversation. And we'll really try to peel back the layers on what I think is a very important topic of shareholder voting and this concentration of power. Now, later, I'll be joined by Corey Hofstein, co-founder and chief investment officer at Newfound Research, so Corey's behind a brand new ETF issuer called Return Stacked ETFs, which last week they launched their first product. It's the Return Stacked Bonds and Managed Futures ETF, ticker symbol RSBT. And so we're going to dive into that in pretty good detail. And actually, Dave's going to stick around for that conversation as well. I, I sort of have a, a co-host this week, which I'm looking forward to. But uh, that should be a great chat with Corey. 
As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's now bring in my uh, co-host this week, Vetify's Dave Nottig. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. They're not just telling you what positions they've got. They're telling you precisely what trades they've made. It's a little bit of a who's who of the corporate bond space. Dave, this is going to be uh, fun. I might just sit back and let you do all the heavy lifting this week. I'm still tired from uh, exchange. I was going to say I need the opposite, Nate. I mean, I'm still trying to get my uh, get my strength back, as it were. <laughs> I don't know if you uh, if you listen to this podcast back in the day, but when I started it in 2011, I actually had a co-host for like uh, I don't know five or six years, and I've got to say it's way easier than uh, going solo. I like being solo. <laughs> it's just definitely helpful when somebody else can chime in. Well, you've gotten real good at it, Nate. So. Well, well, thank you. <laughs> All right. So, look, last week, Jan Van Eck wrote this piece titled ESG Died in 2022. And in a nutshell, Jan believes fund companies like Vanguard and BlackRock are becoming too big and powerful because they've continued to uh, increase their corporate voting power. And I would say, look, obviously, Jan's not alone. But I, I want to start by reading an opening quote of his, which is this. He says, quote, as ESG enters the political realm, it's not a question of if we should have policies that restrict the voting shares of fund companies, but which one? And he then goes on to uh, lay out various potential solutions, which we'll discuss with him in a bit. But where I thought we'd start with you, Dave, is how did we get here? Like, is this as simple as the rise of index investing over the past decade plus has consolidated voting power in the hands of a few asset managers? And so now here we are and we need to figure out some sort of solution. Or do you think there are some other factors at play? I, I mean, I think that is 90 percent of it. Right. So in terms of like how we got to the point where we have concentration, that is a legitimate point. I mean, if you look at Apple right now, it's about seven or eight percent owned by Vanguard, about six or seven percent owned by Vanguard, et cetera. I am by BlackRock. So it, it is the case that the big three, which is what we tend to talk about, do have pretty strong ownership of the the mega caps. And actually, when you get into things like some of the mid cap dividends, which tend to be loved mostly by index providers, you can actually get up into the tens where you end up with, you know, Vanguard owning 17 percent of a company, things like that. So it's legitimate that people are concerned about ownership and this concentration of ownership. The question is, what do you do about it? And I think that's where the rub is. It's absolutely because of the rise of indexing. Um, to some extent, it's because of how we've outsourced the social safety net and required in, uh, retirement investors to be investors, whether they want to be or not. They have to be in the stock market. And rather than becoming investors, they choose to be, choose to be participants. It's, li it's literally the word we use, right? Uh, and if you're going to be a participant in the market, I think it's unreasonable to expect you to be a price setter. Hence, we all end up indexing. Do you think there's a uh, political angle here, the, this polarization of politics? Do you think that's amplifying this issue? Because it seems like more people care about this now. You, you know, tenure, and I get, again, the, the rise of passive, but... You know, five years ago, I didn't feel like I was hearing much about this at all. And now it's like every other week there's a headline yeah, regarding I corporate. Think some, some of it has to do with the combo platter of, yes, we have this rise in indexing. I don't think that's what's driving it. I think what's driving the, the focus right now 
is this idea that all of the sudden it seems like who runs corporations really matters. I think there's this sense that the the sort of body corpus, all of us as investors, we all sort of get this sense that corporate power matters more than it did, say, in the 1990s. What a Twitter or an Apple or a Microsoft or a Verizon or your power company chooses to do has more of an impact on your actual day-to-day lived experience. I think that's been accelerated because of the pandemic. I certainly think climate change reaction is a piece of this. I think uh, issues around governance and authoritarian regimes and whether you want to be in China is part of this as well. And I think, uh, you know, the focus on on the social part as well, you know, whether or not Tesla is or is not running a, a plant appropriately in Fremont, California, all of a sudden people really care. If you care, the way you impact companies, we now understand, is you vote. So I think that's a big piece of it. Dave, you actually uh, managed funds before and and been involved in this process of of proxy voting. And I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but my sense is not everyone is familiar with what goes on behind the scenes when it comes to corporate governance and and proxy voting. Can you maybe explain a few of the basics here? So, like, I own Vanguard index funds. Those index funds hold shares of underlying companies. But it's Vanguard who actually gets to decide how to vote those underlying company shares what types of issues is Vanguard voting on and, and just how does this process work overall? Yeah. So for the most part, uh, an annual, you know, an annual general meeting, which is where these things happen, is a pretty boring, uh, you know, a pretty boring affair. An average annual general meeting, you're going to be maybe nominating and voting on a director or two that's going to be on the board. Very often those are uncontested seats, meaning it's a friend of a friend of somebody at the CEO's office that is getting nominated to be a board member because he's 69 years old and is semi-retired, whatever, right? That's sort of the norm and nobody pays much attention to it. Increasingly, however, there are shareholder proposals, which can come in the likes of everything from uh, we would like Exxon to disclose more about what they're doing for carbon transition to we want to get a diversity report so we understand what our hiring practices are inside the company. Those kinds of shareholder uh, proposals can be a little bit more contentious. Sometimes they have a bit of a burden for the company. Sometimes they don't. Most of the time, I think they don't. I think that gets blown out of proportion. But it is the case that there are now increasingly, particularly around environmental and social issues, uh, proposals that companies have to respond to. And that's where often this difference of 10 or 15 percent of the vote block can make a difference about whether or not a company is doing something or not. The probably biggest example I can come up with in recent history was uh, engine number one's uh, efforts to get two directors placed on the Exxon board, which they succeeded at. And I think that really opened up a lot of eyes because now we had the small upstart index manager all of a sudden getting corporate power projected onto the board of Exxon. I know there's some debate about whether or not this concentration of power is actually an issue, but... Do you mind, and I think I know where you fall, but do you mind explaining the potential problems here? Like, why could this be an issue if a few fund companies have enormous voting power? Like, how would that manifest itself? Oh, well, I mean, you can imagine all sorts of strange backroom deals, right? I mean, if in some sort of nefarious world where, uh, you know, BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard all got together in some back room with cigars and green eye shades and decided that they were going to uh, take over Tesla because they wanted to uh, take down 
uh, I don't I don't know, big energy or something like that and, and decided to start shutting down plants in, in some sort of horrible non-economic decision for the company Tesla. You can imagine that you could have a set of actors who have a very non-economic sort of non-socially positive thing that they want to do with a corporation and they could get away with it because they get the index shares. In reality, it's nowhere near that nefarious. I mean, they, BlackRock is the one that gets tend to drag get get dragged into this the most part. BlackRock has 130 people who are focused on corporate governance. So when they are reviewing a proxy statement, they're not. There's no backroom deal here. They're going off a set of governance principles which they projected. Everybody can read them, uh, and often what they do is publish an entire white paper on, say, Exxon's upcoming vote and how they intend to vote beforehand. Um, and, and I think we've seen a lot of the big index providers get very, very proactive about saying what they're going to do when they vote, which makes people uncomfortable because for every vote, there's somebody who believes the opposite. Um, a lot of it does end up being around ESG concerns, and I think there's reasonable discussion there, right? If Should a proxy voter be only voting for the next quarter, or should they be voting for the next year or the next decade? You make different decisions based on your answer. Well, the other thing here, too, which you were alluding to with engine number one, uh, nobody is forcing an investor to invest in BlackRock funds or Vanguard funds, right? Like you right. as an investor are making that choice. And I'm sure we'll get into this with Jan. But my point is, if you don't like how BlackRock is voting shares uh, or engine number one or Strive or whoever it is, well, you can go to another fund provider. And I think that that point gets lost in the shuffle. Absolutely. And, and I also think that uh, as, as we'll get into here with Jan in a second, I think it, it sounds interesting to say something like, well, we're going to cap the amount that an institution can vote. The devil's in the details. No doubt. Well, obviously, the concern is that, again, you look at the big three ETF issuers, they control nearly 80 percent of the ETF market, iShares, Vanguard and State Street. So just the optics there aren't great. They do have a lot of voting power in corporate boardrooms. They can actually move the needle on how companies act and uh, what types of initiatives they per, per, uh, pursue. So that could be a problem if those companies have some sort of agenda to pursue, as we were talking about. And maybe it's an agenda that not everyone agrees with. Is it time to amplify your income potential? Discover Amplify's high-quality and high-income ETFs designed to provide you monthly income. When income matters to you, explore Amplify ETFs. Get current monthly yields at AmplifyYields.com. There's no guarantee that distributions will be made. Investing risk includes principal loss. Visit Amplify ETFs to view a prospectus, which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully. Amplify ETFs are distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Now joined by Jan Van Eck, CEO of ETF issuer Van Eck. Currently about 70 ETFs, over $56 billion in assets. 
And Jan is a highly respected industry leader. I think this piece we're going to discuss is perfect evidence of that. I would say Jan is someone who really wants to help drive the industry forward, and he isn't afraid to put his opinions out there. And so last week, he published this blog titled ESG Died in 2022, which is uh, Dave and I were just discussing. This highlights the growing concentration of corporate voting power among a few large fund companies. It's posted at vanek.com on their insights page. Highly encourage everyone to uh, read this. But Jan, always a pleasure. Welcome back to the uh, podcast. Appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Nate. I appreciate it. Hey, I'm not quite sure how we missed each other at uh, Exchange last week. How was the event for you? Uh, it was it was busy, and um, you know I think interestingly a good time to kind of take stock of where the industry is going and what it's focusing on, and that's what uh, prompted me to uh, kind of use this provocative headline on this uh, opinion piece that I wrote saying uh, ESG died last year. <laughs> I, you know I love that uh, that title. By the way, I saw on a uh, Twitter that you enjoy the puppy play area at Exchange, which I thought was a stroke of genius by the uh, the Vetify team. It, it was a, it, I, it's <laughs> the first time I've ever seen puppies uh, at a uh, investment conference. I'm not sure I'll ever see it again. Uh, but at least it wasn't cats. I'm allergic to cats. It was a nice break. All right. So uh, as I mentioned, Dave and I did spend a few minutes setting the table for our conversation here. And, and you started heading down this path, Jan. But I, I did want to ask you, talk more about your motivation for writing this piece now. So I, I know you mentioned these comments out of ICI where they said the uh, politicization of American investing had reached a new low and that politicians uh, should stay out of the business of fund companies. Was it those comments specifically, or is this just something that's been on your mind for a while? Oh, this, this trend has been uh, happening for, really, it, it's, it's the explosion of ETFs and the success of ETFs. And, uh, you know, I tip my hat to Jack Bogle, who wrote an opinion piece on this, uh, you know, shortly before he passed away. And he wrote it in 2018, so uh, coming up on five years ago. So this is – and it's only going to continue, right? The index company, the big index companies are have huge market share. And as the industry grows, I mean, unless they lose market share, just the pure math of it is they're going to own more and more and more of corporate America. And I'm saying, hey, everybody – Let's uh, let's stop and think about this, um, because at some point it's going to backfire. And I don't want it to backfire on the industry. When you say backfire, just talk more about that from your perspective. Why do you think this could be an issue if the, the this concentration of proxy voting power uh, grows? Well, you know, vote, proxy voting is just a, another way of saying they're running corporate America. And, you know, since a hundred years ago, really since the Industrial Revolution, uh, we in the United States have said we don't want concentrated parts of the economy running corporate America, whether it's uh, J.P. Morgan uh, or, or any other, you know, you know, control of banks or control of public companies is always something where for a hundred years and really I think it's I mean, there are big differences depending on what side of the aisle you're on, but we generally agree that we should focus um, our, our attention where there is a concentration of power 
and we should provide transparency um, around that uh, through regulation. And that's why we disclose ownership. Like if you have to, if you want to own six percent of a public company, you have to disclose that. Before we jump into some of the potential solutions here, Dave, do you want to comment on anything yeah, that Jan said? Yeah. Just a couple of quick questions, John, and obviously you and I have talked about this over the decades, I think, at this point, um, and it's an issue I know that's both near and dear to our heart. I guess the distinction I want to make here, and I'd love to get your thoughts on, is why is it so different from your perspective if, say, Vanguard owns 10% of a company versus, say, SoftBank owns 10% of a company or Capital Research and Management owns 10% of a company. I mean, the real heavy concentrated ownerships aren't actually in the index providers. Like SoftBank owns 25% of Alibaba. Jeff Bezos owns 15% of Amazon, right? There, there are these super concentrated pockets, but we don't tend to talk too much about that. We seem to focus on the index side, but why, why is that less valid as an ownership concentration than Fidelity or Capital Group? It's not uh, per se less valid, but the way it operates functionally, Dave, I would say, is that it's, it's, it's unknown, and I would also say not really explicitly delegated. Right. So if you have a corporate shareholder or like a soft bank, let's say to use your example, and they're doing a takeover offer of another company, that there's, there's a decision, an informed decision making process around that. Presumably the board of SoftBank has decided to take that action. And what I'm saying is that, and, 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 you know, thanks for sharing your piece, the fragmentation of um, of of ownership of by these index funds, and then the lack of transparency of what the proxy voters are doing, and then I, I guess just the just the lack of information on uh, uh, on all those decisions. Right, you you make a great point, which is sure all the proxy votes that Vanguard takes are disclosed, but this other dynamic that I really want to stress is. Because um, there's a lot of control uh, that Vanguard can exercise, and I'm not, I'm just saying picking one name, over a company that their funds own just by virtue of having a conversation with a director, right? Because imagine the proxy voter sitting across the table from a, the director of a company that's 10% owned by Vanguard or any other fund company. That director knows that if Vanguard doesn't vote for them for re-election, they're probably going to lose, right? So it's not just that the proxy – sorry, let me just finish. But it's not just that the audit firm, which is on the proxy, is uh, approved, who cares, or some other kind of resolution that's on the proxy. There's a whole range of topics that are now being discussed and can be discussed between these very large owners, and we just don't know what's going on there. But, but I guess my point is we don't know what's going on when Capital Group or Fidelity is having that conversation either. And, in, you know, when Capital Group's in there, that's on behalf of 35 different funds with 35 different managers who may all have chosen to own Bank of America or you know, ASML or whatever it is. Um, but they send in one person from their proxy team to do engagement. I don't. I guess the, the the challenge I always have is I know more about say what BlackRock's doing in voting because they publish reports on every single vote. I have no idea what Fidelity or CMR is doing 
when they're going in with the same percentage stake, but because they're active, somehow they get a pass because I, that's the, that's the connection I don't get. If, if, if the issue here is ownership, why does it matter who the ownership is concentrated with? Yeah, you know, I think what's, um, what I would like to focus on, uh, Dave and Nate, and I think it's more important is the areas that we agree on. Okay. And, and what, 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 what I think is missing from the common understanding is this is a big concentration of power. I think, Dave, what you were saying is, John, yes. why do you draw a distinction between passive and active? And, and I, and I, there are differences in our kind of, uh, prescriptions, if you will. But the big story I think that's being missed is just that this is a big concentration of power and the politicians have figured it out, right? So I, I think we just can't get too involved in the pros and cons of any particular solution because I love your potential solution. I probably don't really disagree with any of it as maybe a hybrid with, with what I'm talking about or even as an alternative. But I think what's missing is just that, uh, what is growing, Dave, is, is index fund companies in the ETF industry, not active fund managers. Um, and I'm happy to, to answer your question. I know I, I didn't just now, but uh, let me stop there. <laughs> well, let's do this. Let's go through some of the potential solutions. And, Jan, you mentioned how Vanguard founder Jack Bogle in his last uh, Wall Street Journal piece before he passed away, he, he wrote about this entire topic, which I found interesting, obviously, because Vanguard is one of the firms whose power has grown, right? But uh, Jack did offer several potential solutions, some of which he immediately ruled out and then others which could be more viable. So let's go through those and uh, either of you can comment, and we'll just bat these around a little bit. I do want to point out that the overall backdrop to this issue is that obviously low-cost indexing has been very beneficial to end investors, and that's the conundrum, right? H- how do we solve this concentration of power issue without taking away the benefits of low-cost indexing? So l- l- let's just go through these. The first potential solution is to require much better public disclosures by index funds of their voting policies and uh, exactly how they're engaging with corporations. This dovetails actually pretty well into what we were just discussing. But, Jan, I'll I'll start with you. What's the good or or the bad of that approach? Uh, Listen, I think, first of all, uh, uh, fund companies are required to publicly disclose on their websites how they vote on proxies. Uh, but I think that, in a way, no one's going to read all that stuff. And I think, again, Dave and I agree on this, that I would say over-disclosure is, is non-disclosure. Um, <laughs> and then, again, my, my point is that there are all these conversations now happening between proxy voters. And not just – it just used to be the a company's CEO or their investor relations person – but now all the members or many members of a board of big companies are meeting directly with their largest shareholders. And what are you going to do? You're going to, let's say they have dinner together or they have a cup of coffee. Are you going to record that whole conversation and put that on the website? I just think that's impractical. Dave, any quick comments on that? Yeah, I agree that over disclosure is no disclosure. Um, I, you know, I, I, I applaud those companies that are really going above and beyond and producing readable narrative discussions of the important issues. And I think that that's great. I think it's very hard to mandate that. I do think we could do a better job of disclosure around contact and things like that. Um, but I, I, I think that, as Jan says, most of this is already out there and we've already seen that most people don't care. 
All right, the next two potential solutions, which, John, it seems like you pretty quickly shot these down, so we don't need to spend a lot of time here, but um, they were to require index funds to retain an independent super, uh, supervisory board with full responsibility for all decisions regarding corporate governance. And I, I know you question whether that would actually improve the existing oversight provided by independent uh, fund directors. And then the other potential solution was to enact federal regulation making it clear that directors of index funds have a fiduciary duty to vote solely in the interest of fund shareholders. But you said that doesn't really add uh, protection and, and there's no mechanism to stop the politicization of proxy voters. So any quick comments on either of those, Jan? No, I mean, you know, just to remind everyone, as an ETF provider, we have independent boards that already oversee the exercise of our fiduciary duties which includes the voting of proxies. So that's almost like, okay, that already exists. Right. And then the second yeah, thing that you mentioned is sort of like, well, I think that's a simplistic uh, way because obviously directors who might, let's say, take ESG considerations into account think that they're doing it in the interest of fund shareholders. And so, look, there's a lot of judgment involved here, and I don't think – Saying something again you know, about their fiduciary duty solves that the, what they need, what they have de facto is a broad range of action. I agree. Yeah, totally agree. I, ahead, I don't Dan. think there's any. I don't think there's anybody in a proxy uh, firm or uh, sitting on a fund board that thinks they are explicitly not being a fiduciary. So I, I, I agree. I think putting a bandaid on it and making it relabeled doesn't change anything. All right, Jan, so let's get to your preferred solution, which is to cap the percentage of company shares any index fund provider can vote on. And I think in your piece you uh, you, you suggested 5%, but you could say that could move uh, up or down. So just explain why you like that solution. Uh, well, I, I like it, but very few other people like it. But I think <laughs> it's, it's actually, in, in, a, in a way, uh, a, a kind of consensus. Um, so why I like it is 5%. Still gives index companies a lot of input in a, in, into uh, in, into any particular portfolio company that they own shares of. Uh, it also uh, doesn't stop activist investors and all the other good stuff that happens to make sure the companies are run well. Uh, so I, I think it doesn't do a lot of harm, um, but it does address this issue of how do you stop their power. And I, and I want to point something out, I think, that supports my argument, which is that BlackRock is already starting to try to push some of the proxy voting responsibilities to their uh, institutional uh, share clients, right? So they're kind of trying to push their ownership down towards that 5% by putting in mechanisms and software and contracts uh, in order to enable that, and I and I think uh, Vanguard might have started efforts in that uh, as well, and 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 I think we all may know some startup companies that are basically enabling that. So uh, anyway, I just that, that's uh, that's the argument. But let me let me have Dave attack, and then I'll defend it some more. <laughs> no, no, I look. I actually am not a horrible. I, like I don't think this is the worst idea ever. Let me put it there. Now the Index Act had the had the market one percent. <laughs> the mar, the one percent mark is ridiculous. At 1%, my estimation is every mid-cap company can't hold an annual general meeting. Uh, so that's a, that's a real problem. At 5%, if you combined 5% with some relief of the 40 Act that it may be easier for a fund company to actually solicit the opinions of their shareholders, 
then I think we could get somewhere. I think, like, I, I'll cut to the chase. I think the end state here is pass-through voting. I don't think Jan really disagrees that the end shareholders should be the one deciding. There's a bunch of hurdles in the way. Um, Jan hinted at Tamello, our friend Georgia Stewart, who was on my panel down at Exchange, um, is, is trying to build the, the sort of back-end rails to make it easier for fund companies to basically ask their shareholders what they want to do with the proxy voting. But I actually think there's a whole missing system here, which is I, as an individual investor, of course, do not want to vote 3,000 proxies on my total market fund. What I would love to do is be able to choose amongst a handful of proxy voters, uh, proxy solicitation services, proxy services, where I could align my values along with those votes. So I could say, hey, you know what? I want the Sierra Club to advise on everything, or I want Club for Growth to advise on everything, where they have an opinion on particular activities. Then we, I think, start getting to a place where the index becomes a utility, and the voting just becomes another choice I make as an investor. And I can choose to vote with the House. And if I choose to vote with the House, that shouldn't count against that 5% cap. The 5% cap in my world would only apply to shares which you can say nothing about, meaning you've done no surveying, you've had no preference assigned by any of the end shareholders. Now what you're really talking about is residual ownership, right? People who you either couldn't get to or don't care to fill out the form, don't care to put in a checkbox in their Schwab account. Then I think we get somewhere. So I, I, I do think we should be moving towards a world where this is all passed through, whether or not capping is the forcing mechanism to get there. I think we're going to get there anyway. Yeah, and I'll just add, regarding the pass-through voting, and I I actually tweeted this out yesterday, you're seeing more uh, larger fund companies try to at least start walking down this path. So as an example, Vanguard, I received a notification in the mail. There was a QR code. You scan that QR code with your phone, takes you to a website. And then, Dave, to what you're saying, basically you select um, how you want your proxies voted. So they had four options. One was a company board-aligned policy. One was a Glass-Lewis ESG policy. One was just not voting at all. And then the other one was a Vanguard Advice Fund policy. And obviously that's very high level. You still have to have uh, shareholders actually go through and select these preferences. But you can see us starting to walk down that path. The, the yep. one thing that I, I will ask, and, and Jan, I, I guess I'll direct this to you when we talk about capping uh, shares being voted. And, and I mentioned this to Dave earlier as well. We batted this around. But um, if an investor is saying, hey, look, um, I'm fine uh, owning BlackRock shares or iShares or Vanguard shares, aren't they sort of implicitly agreeing with how proxies are voted? In, in other words, if they don't like how BlackRock's voting their shares, maybe they should move their money to another company. Uh, I, I just think that the the purchase of a low cost index fund uh, is that's not a consideration, right? I just don't think that uh, this this it's sort of a, an externality, right? I just want low cost access to large cap stocks. The fact that the industry has developed such that three companies uh, own so much of corporate America is just something that people don't pay any attention to, right? And that's why we're having this conversation. We're trying to identify that this is really important from a policy perspective, and we're just trying to offer some practical solutions to it. Let me ask um, you, go ahead, go ahead. I, I, I think I, I really like David's uh, you know, different approach um, of effectively delegating the uh, giving uh, giving an owner the flexibility of delegating that proxy voting process i just want to remind everyone that thinking of how a proxy is voted the most important thing 
is actually the director slate. And I think what you will see over the next five or ten years is exactly what David talked about, right, which is delegating it to informed proxy voters. But I think director seats may be increasingly at play and not just, you know, who's the auditor, right, or some particular, um, you know, social uh, thing that gets on the proxy vote because those tend to lose. But there's a lot of substance that can lie behind which director you vote for. Absolutely. Um, Jan, one thing I do want to touch on, just because I think it adds context and sort of richness to this overall discussion, um, you noted how Jack Bogle didn't like the solution of, of capping the percentage uh, any index fund can vote on because he felt like uh, index fund holders were actually more virtuous, right? They were more deserving of voting proxies because they tend to be longer-term owners. They're not, as he put it, corporate stock runners. But you countered that by saying, well, that, that's an oversimplification if you actually look at what various index funds do. Can you, can you just touch on that? I think that's an important point in this entire conversation. Yeah, um, I, I think, um, so like he said, and actually so the shareholder governance movement uh, started in the 80s, actually when public pension funds started growing in size, and they started realizing, hey, we have big proxy voting power. And they said, well, we're, you know, we're actually going to be owning the stock for a long time, right, because we have to worry about our employees' uh, retirement. So that's 30 years from now. So we are somehow more virtuous in how we think about investing. And, you know, I, I, I think I've, I've had many debates about this, like, oh, activists are only short-term uh, but and then other active active investors will say, yeah, but we know much more about the company than the index fund holder, so we are more enlightened. And even though we may own it for a shorter period, we're better shareholders. I just think that's not an argument that either either side can win. Um, so that's that, that that's my perspective on that. Well, I thought your quote said it perfectly in the piece. You said you don't think it's necessary to look into the hearts and intention of index and active fund holders. You said rather we should be trying to address uh, the, the, this public policy issue of concentration of power. Um, l- let me ask you both this because we only have a few minutes left. Another potential solution and one that you'll see batted around from time to time is obviously to break up index fund companies in some fashion, right? Force them to uh, spin off their assets into several different entities, which would each then be independently managed, that sort of thing. I actually feel like this is a path that we may see some politicians try to head down, right? This is a a perfect place to grandstand. Um, But I guess the question I have for both of you, one, is this even realistic? Like, is this even possible to do? No. Okay, and why? Explain why. (laughs) Well, I I mean, remember, we're talking largely here about registered funds. And a 40-act fund is its own legal entity, and it has a contract with an investment advisor Almost by default, that contract with the investment advisor also passes out the proxy voting, but it is not wrote that it's not written into the 40 Act that it has to work that way. It's part of these IA contracts. So if, in fact, you ended up with a world where they were like, well, we're going to break up the index providers unless they get their ownership stakes down underneath this threshold, it's frankly trivial for one of these companies to set up three or four different subsidiaries and say, okay, well, we're only going to have the U.S. index funds run through this subsidiary. We're only going to have CITs run through that subsidiary. We're going to do delegated voting on all of those to three different entities that are Chinese-walled, and now you don't have any issues at all. So every proposal I've heard for how you would like really sort of draconianly enforce either a cap or a breakup, there's like 
15 different ways to immediately dance around it. So I, I think that that's sort of a bit of a canard. I don't think it's a lot of energy should be spent on that. I think, you know, Jan's, Jan's and my, I think, have sort of the, the edges of the solution here. It's some combination of, of recognition that too much is bad and some way to get around that by making it easier to do delegation. Whether or not it's hard caps or whether you need legislation, I think that remains to be seen. But I think we're, I, Jan and I, I think are both pushing in the same direction. Jan, two minutes left. You get the final word. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I, and I think what I think index fund companies are too politically smart, right? Let's just review what just happened in the last movie, which is Larry Fink sort of stood up and sort of declared that he was going to use BlackRock's power to make the world a better place. And, of course, politicians are going to shoot it someone and say, oh, no, wait a minute, that's my job to make the world a better place. <laughs> Who the hell are you? Just because you own a whole bunch of proxy, you know, here you have uh, good intentions. <laughs> so, so I think, you know, what, I think index fund companies are unlikely to be that stupid. And I think, I think their response uh, really reflects this conversation, which is, you know, they're trying to delegate that proxy vote back to their bigger clients and reduce this as a political issue. I just think it's a good dialogue that we're having. Um, I appreciate you setting this up. And I just think that if the industry accelerates those solutions and, and offers really good ways of addressing it, like, like some of what Dave said, then I think then we'll just get out of the hairs of politicians, which is uh, the cross-eyes of politicians, which I think is what we should be doing. I 100% agree. And, Jan, I just want to tell you, I do really appreciate you taking a position on something like this. I really credit you because I feel like so many fund companies, uh, they walk around on eggshells and everything is so scrubbed and washed. It's also plain vanilla. And I don't think that helps move us forward. So I, I really applaud you for bringing this issue back out into the open uh, so we can have a discussion like this. And so thank you for that. And thank you for joining us this week. Yeah, I mean, listen, that's, that's flattering. But I will say that I think I'm in a unique position because uh, Vanek does own over 5% of some public companies. So we would have to eat my own cooking. Um, and so that gives me, I think, because we also have an active business, a little bit of a, a you know, kind of more, uh, a better perspective maybe than some. Well, thank sure. you. That was Jan Vanek, CEO of ETF issuer Vanek. Own Bitcoin but also want income? There is a way to generate monthly income while you hold. Visit Simplify.us for information on the Simplify Bitcoin income strategy. Simplify Asset Management, Inc. is a registered investment advisor. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor. This information is not intended to provide investment advice. Our last guest this week, certainly not least, is Corey Hofstein, co-founder and chief investment officer at Newfound Research, who's a quantitative investment and research firm. And I would say they're really leading the charge on bringing this concept of return stacking to all investors. And on that note, they're also behind return stacked ETFs, which just last week launched their first ETF, the Return Stacked Bonds and Managed Futures ETF, ticker symbol RSBT. And we now have Corey on the line with us. Corey, welcome back to the uh, podcast, and great seeing you last week. 
Nate, thank you for the opportunity to return to the podcast. All right, so as you may have gathered there, I brought in a uh, a ringer for our conversation. Dave Nottig is joining us as well. I assume you two are uh, well acquainted with each other? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Good to see you, Corey. <laughs> All right, so, so hey, look, let's do this. Um, Corey, why don't you explain how RSBT is constructed and what the overall investment idea is, and then uh, Dave and I will pepper you with a variety of questions. You'll get a chance to run the ETF Prime gauntlet, which I think will be pretty easy for you, at least from my side, but uh, tell us about RSBT. Looking forward to it. So RSBT, the basic idea here is for every dollar an investor puts into the fund, the strategy is seeking to provide a dollar of core U.S. fixed income exposure as well as a dollar of managed futures exposure. So it's really meant to be this two-in-one concept with the real core idea being here. We're trying to help investors access alternatives in a more efficient way. The core problem investors have been facing forever is if they want to include diversifying alternatives, they have to figure out a way to make room in their portfolio. They either have to sell stocks or sell bonds. With this new strategy, by really stacking the managed futures uh, strategy on top of the bonds, investors can sell some fixed income, buy this ETF, and maintain the bond exposure they had all along with getting the managed futures on top, hence the name return stacking. Yeah, and so talk more about that, like, just from a layman's perspective on why this is something investors should consider. And I I guess maybe just use a a, a very basic example of how this would work, because I just want to make sure everybody fully is tracking on the return stacking concept. Absolutely. So this is something that institutions have actually been doing for decades. You can trace it back to PIMCO in the 1980s with what's called their Stocks Plus program, and it, and it really goes, uh, in, the, in the early 2000s, they called it portable alpha, something that got adopted by institutions. And the core idea is to say, if we're trying to have our strategic stock and bond exposure and introduce diversifying alternatives, what's the most efficient way to do that? How do we build the portfolio we actually want? And all too often for retail individuals or retail advisors, Again, what they have to do is they have to sell some stocks and bonds to make room. And that's not always the portfolio that's going to ultimately have the highest sharp ratio, right? Maximize those returns per unit of risk. Uh, embrace diversification to its maximum potential. And so what we're looking to do is allow investors to overlay alternatives on top of their existing strategic portfolio. So, so let's use a concrete example. Let's say you have a 60% stock, 40% bond portfolio, and you want to introduce managed futures. Well, what you could do is say sell 20% of your bonds and put 20% into our new return stacked bond and managed futures ETF. And what you would have is then 60% bond stocks, 20% bonds, 20% in our ETF. But if you do an X-ray look-through, because our ETF is simultaneously providing you with exposure to bonds and managed futures, you end up with 60% stocks, 40% bonds, and an extra 20% of managed futures layered on top. And the real benefit there to me is that when you go through a decade like the 2010s where alternatives struggled relative to traditional assets, you can still layer them on top of your portfolio, 
maintain your exposure to traditional assets and be able to stick with your portfolio through those periods where alternatives struggle uh, in relative performance. Corey, let me ask you this, and then Dave, uh, I want to have you chime in. Um, obviously, yeah. the way that you're accomplishing this, so again, you're, you're getting basically a dollar exposure to U.S. bonds, dollar exposure to managed future strategy for every dollar invested. So there's a leverage component. And I think a lot of advisors and investors, uh, they're almost pre-programmed to view leverage as bad, right? It, it can certainly magnify opportunities, but it can also magnify risks. So talk more about leverage in the context of return stacking and why, why advisors shouldn't automatically assume leverage equals bad. I just think that's a hurdle that people have to get over. Yeah, look, if, if we go to the history of financial catastrophes, you'll often find leverage at the center of all of them. But I think <laughs> what's really important to acknowledge is that it's not just leverage. It's often concentrated leverage, right? What I wouldn't recommend someone do is, say, go three times levered, in equities, right? You're just doubling down on the same risk. What we're trying to do with the concept of return stacking is use leverage to unlock the benefits of diversification. We're trying to help investors introduce diversifying alternatives into their portfolio using leverage. Uh, alternatives that can do well when during periods that stocks and bonds struggle. So, I think 2022 is a perfect example. We saw during inflationary impulses, stocks and bonds can both lose value simultaneously, whereas strategies like managed futures have historically done well during those periods. So the ability to maintain that core stock and bond while introduce an alternative that can zig when the strategic portfolio zags, we think that's a really prudent use of leverage. Well, it seems to me, Corey, that for most advisors, when I look at their portfolios, they often have almost no or no allocation to what I would consider a, a counter-correlated asset class, either hard assets or managed futures or, or anything that's going to give you uh, either a counter-correlated return or a total return source of uh, a, a pattern of returns. And it seems like what you're saying here is that the leverage you're using isn't to double down. You're not taking the leverage to get more Tesla. You're, get, you're taking the leverage to get something that is truly diversified versus everything else you own. Is that an accurate way of, of thinking about that? Exactly. I mean, if you look at managed futures over the last 20-plus years, uh, it has a track record of returning north of what bonds have done uh, with almost zero correlation to stocks and bonds and having done well during almost every major equity crisis period. Now, obviously, past performance is certainly not a guarantee of future results, but it's a dynamic trading strategy that has historically exhibited really beneficial diversification properties. And that's why, for us, we get really excited about the idea of layering it on top of an investor's strategic portfolio. All right, let me let me ask you the hard question about leverage then, because I, I understand that the leverage here isn't coming in the sense of like you're going and getting a senior unsecured note from a bank. It's embedded in the products that you're using. But how should investors be thinking about this in terms of rising interest rates or, or declining interest rates at the end of next year, if that's where we're headed? Like how sensitive is this strategy going to be towards, a, you know, a whipsaw in interest rates? Yeah, there's really three major components there, right? The the most obvious one is we're buying bonds. We're trying to provide that core bond exposure, which is going to be sensitive to changing rates. But again, if you're if you have bonds in your portfolio and you're replacing them with this strategy, that exposure remains the same. 
So the, the bonds are being replaced for bonds, and you have the same interest rate sensitivity. You then have the managed futures component. And there, this is a very flexible trading strategy. It trades global futures contracts, currencies, commodities, equities, and bonds. And so it has the ability to go both long and short all those asset classes. And so what we saw last year uh, in 2022 was most managed future strategies were short bonds and, in fact, profited from a rising rate environment. So, again, in, in those whipsaw changes and the turning points, the managed future strategy needs to sort of change long to short. Uh, but in sustained trends, it can do quite well. And then the last piece, which you alluded to, is the funding costs, right? Leverage, there's a a cost you have to pay, much like a mortgage. Uh, You're borrowing money to buy a house. Well, we're effectively borrowing money to add this exposure on. Yes, as rates go up, that borrowing gets more expensive. But ultimately, what we would expect is that the um, return of all asset classes goes up as well. And some of this, the borrowing we do isn't like borrowing from a bank or borrowing in your brokerage account where you might see rates of 11 12% today. We're borrowing using futures contracts, which have some of the most cost-competitive borrowing rates in the market. So, so, Corey, I mean, as I think about the risks of a return stacking strategy overall, and, and look, people can go crawl into the, perspect, uh, the prospectus and look at every itemized risk, but you, you hit on the funding costs. I guess what I'm getting at, this feels like a strategy where you can have your cake and eat it too, right? You can have maintain that 60-40 allocation, add a diversifying strategy. My question for you is, like, why shouldn't everyone do this? Or is it your belief that everyone should? Well, I'm certainly biased. Uh, this is how I invest. I certainly strongly believe in it. That's why I launched the product. Um, but the, the obvious risk, and this is why we really like the name return stacking, is you're adding returns on top of each other. So if you have, say, your strategic portfolio and you add the managed futures on top using a product like this, if your strategic portfolio and managed futures both have good years, you'll have outsized upside returns. But if they both have negative returns, well, then you'll have greater losses than you would have if you didn't overlay with the managed futures. Now, we're strong believers that managed futures tend to have zero correlation to both stocks and bonds, but that doesn't mean negatively correlated, right? And so there will be periods where it all goes down together, and you will have greater losses than if you didn't do this. We just think over the long run, it's accretive, uh, both to reducing risk in the portfolio as well as to long-term returns. Right. So if I could Corey, just restate I, that. Sorry, I was just going to say, I mean, really the biggest risk here is if you select an underperforming diversifying strategy, correct? I mean, at the end of the day, that's the biggest risk here. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you add something on top that has negative returns, it's just going to be a drag to the portfolio. Corey, I, I just had one one last question. So when we talk about managed futures, that's a big bucket that a lot of people, I think, aren't super familiar with. I think a lot of folks think that that's either like exclusively focused on commodities or exclusively focused on currencies. And in fact, uh, just looking at sort of what was being held in, in RSBT a few days ago, uh, a lot of what you're doing is actually tweaking around the yield curve too, right? Because the futures also include things like five-year note futures, right? Right. Yeah, this is a, so this, that, this is a massive that, category. A, yeah, yeah. So how do you how do you determine whether or not you want to be playing in the interest rate space or in the commodity space or in the currency space? Yeah, this is a massive, massive category. And as, as you allude to, there's a ton of choices managers can make as to how they build this strategy. 
which leads to a huge amount of dispersion among managers. What we really wanted to do was sort of eliminate that single manager risk. We didn't want to have a very particular approach. We wanted to provide as much as we could an index-like experience. So what we do with our strategy is we have 27 highly liquid global futures contracts that we've selected that span equities, bonds, commodities, and currencies. And then what we're trying to do uh, mathematically using different machine learning techniques is track the SOCGEN trend index. This is an index that is made up of 10 plus of the largest trend-following managed futures managers. The returns are published daily, and we're effectively trying to use statistical techniques to figure out what their holdings are so we can replicate that index as closely as possible uh, and basically provide a diversified exposure that will never have, you know, super high dispersion north or south of the benchmark. Hey, Corey, just a few minutes left here uh, before we let you go. I, I want to close with your take on the uh, ETF market and in competition because obviously you made a decision to enter the uh, the, the quote unquote ETF Terradome, right? And yes. I I know you are no spring chicken, right? You know how tough this space is. So I'm curious what put you over the top to launch this product. And it, it looks like you'll have some additional products coming as well, but why get involved in the ETF space? I think for us it it was really a question of finding the product that we thought we could deliver and, and really make a difference, that, that there was an appetite for it. So uh, the original paper we wrote on return stacking, we published well over a year ago. We really tested the market to make sure that we thought there would be an appetite for the product and a real distribution opportunity. And we think it's very differentiated from what's already in the market. It's a very crowded marketplace. Uh, there's a huge amount of competition in traditional exposures. We think this is not only doing something new, but the innovation is really additive to investor portfolios. You know, this isn't new just for the sake of being new and different and trying to, you know, be the shiny object. We think that this is something that can really have a meaningful impact on the way that investors and advisors allocate within their portfolios. And so uh, for us, it was sort of a cumulative making sure there's the business opportunity and making sure that this was a product that we had really high conviction in and being a, a value add to all investors. Well, I've got to tell you, I love the uh, tweet you sent out over the weekend. You said, my not-so-subtle ambitions for return stacking, a suite of building blocks that allow investors to combine the concepts of the Boglehead 3 fund portfolio and Portable Alpha. I, I thought that was uh, perfect. But love it. Corey, so great having you back on the podcast. Congratulations on the launch. Uh, certainly wish you the best of luck. Thank you for joining us this week. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. That was Corey Hofstein, co-founder and chief investment officer at Newfound Research. Dave, thank you for co-hosting this week. This has been a lot of fun. <laughs> Absolute blast. Absolute blast. And couldn't, couldn't have had better conversations. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Amplify ETFs. If you would like to learn more about Amplify ETFs, you can visit AmplifyETFs.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Dimensional's Wes Krill. So he'll be discussing investor behavior, factor investing, and we'll, of course, look at some of their ETFs. And then Alpha Architects Wes Gray will spotlight a couple of their recent ETF launches and also tell us what he's seeing with their uh, ETF white labeling business, which is booming. 
Until then, have a great week, everyone.